You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, for this day, we give you thanks. Um, thanks for the baptisms, for the uh, uh, for the newly baptized, for the babies that are around, and for uh, for each of us being adopted into the family, your family, through our brother, Jesus Christ. And pray now that his word would be spoken as we think about how we live in the world, um, your creation. Uh, help us, Lord. Our needs are always so great. Um, uh, guide us in every way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so love having a turn here for for what Cameron started with the faith and family. Just thrilled, thrilled to uh, uh, connect in with this uh, with this theme. Um, living differently, I think, is kind of what it is. There's a book that I read early on by um, a couple of of, uh, of of theologians and ethicists called Resident Aliens, and I think that's a good idea. We think about being Christians in this world. Um, uh, the old spiritual, this world is not my home. No, I'm just passing through. Um, we have our green cards, but now our citizenship is no longer in this world. We're resident. We live here, but we're always a little bit of an alien. Um, you know, just sort of free-flowing consciousness. Um, you know, I was raised on cable TV, like some other people about my age, and, uh, and Stripes was one of my favorite movies. And we can all sort of touch our our, uh, our nose and say, look, our noses are cold. We're misfits. We don't fit here anymore. That was supposed to be hilarious, and it obviously wasn't. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that was when Bill Murray was funny. Um, uh, we're resident aliens. We're passing through this world. We're not. We, we're, there's in some sense that we're always supposed to feel like this. This isn't my home anymore. Um, I don't understand what I'm seeing and feeling and hearing in the same way I did if there was something like I once was but now am in your life. And I think that's the thread that we're trying to to pull tight in this class, at least as I understand it. And so somewhere along that, um, uh, the tone, uh, the timbre, the tone, the sound of, uh, of what it's like to live differently in the world um, with this mark of humility. That's the word I think we're going to sort of play with. What does it mean to be humble? We'll play with words a little bit. I'm, here's my intention for the class today. Um, I'm going to set the tone a little bit and talk about different positions, you know, Christ against the world or Christ just sort of baptizing the world and sort of saying, yeah, whatever, everything's good, it's all going to happen, don't worry about it. Um, kind of pull that tight a little bit, kind of set the stage, then engage some scripture, and then I hope... Just time for questions. I'm going to work really hard to make sure we leave some space. Um, but with the tone of living in this world as resident aliens is the tone of humility. It's fun to think about that word because um, I think still a lot of us, no matter where we are, still get confused between being humiliated and being humble. And the two things aren't necessarily, they're not the same. Um, they're connected. There's a root that's there, humus, um, where we get the word human. Um, it means earth or dirt, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, dirt to dirt. It's from dirt that we came. Adam was formed from dirt. Therefore, he should be called human or Adam. Um, 
that's where we get this word. And so to be humble is to be brought low, get low, um, being brought low to the earth, um, being brought not of high position, but lowered, where you're real near to where we came from. Um, that's what it is to be humble, where we don't have an inflated or elevated or haughty, and you can hear all the spatial words, not here, but right here. So to be humble is to be low, is to be, have a good sense of who I am vis-a-vis -vis God, other people, um, perhaps even myself. Uh, if God is God and we're not, then now we've got a good relationship. Now, if God is God and I'm right here and he's lucky to have me on my team, that's not a very good relationship. And so it's this whole idea of the tone of living, living differently, of being humble. And so to have that word of humus, when like pine trees especially, that's what I would normally think of, that, uh, you know, layers and layers and layers, years of layers in a, in a pine forest. We call that humus, that we're walking around, that really soft sort of, com you know, compost. Uh, that's what it is to be human, to be humble. Um, sometimes the road towards humility is humiliation, where that's the somewhat abrupt and uh, stark bringing down from a haughty position. Um, but the state of humility is not the same thing as being humiliated. And I hope by the end of this short time, we'll have a sense of what that is as we look at John 8, especially the woman who was caught in adultery, certainly humiliated, but brought to a position of real humility and freedom. Because if you're not free in this world, <coughs> then we're still in, um, in bondage. So that's kind of the preface, the tone of living differently, humility, trying um, to plant the word of, of humble, humus, human, brought low, near to the earth, not of an elevated status or position. So, um, Cameron and I were talking about this. Um, there's pitfalls if we're trying to navigate and trying to think, how do I live in this world? Um, you could think of ditches on both sides, and I think that's fair. On the one hand, it's easy to sort of fall into the ditch of self-righteousness, doing really good here, got it, you know, read the Bible, hear what he has to say, can do most of that, that's gonna be good enough, at least I'm better than she is or he is, I'm okay. God's lucky to have me on his team, said that earlier. Uh, easy to sort of look at the specks in everybody else's eyes rather than paying attention to the moat in my own, the log, the plank in my own eye, and sort of get along in this world and say, like, I, I got this. I'm, I'm, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm doing better than most. Real easy to fall into that mode of thinking as we think, you know, who am I as a Christian as I'm living in this world? Self-righteous. The emphasis there is self that I've got the instructions, I know what to do, I can do this, it's reasonable, um, uh, sensible, I'm a reasonable and sensible person, check, got it. That's one ditch. Another ditch is uh, something like um, demonizing the world, to think the world is this great big allergen and you've gotta make sure that you just don't touch it in any way. And so you can either fly you know, this over here is sort of fight the world, and this is fly away from the world. It's the Benedict option, if you read you know, Rod Dreher's book and all that sort of thing, fly, you know, retreat, pull back, Christian ghetto. Our small group will sometimes fantasize about this. It's like, wouldn't it just be easier if we all just sort of moved 
to the middle of, you know, a, a, we, Calera, I think is what we normally say. Let's just all move to Calera and just like teach each other in sort of a homeschool commune and we'll just be there for 15 years and then they'll be okay and we'll, we'll come back. And it's a great fantasy, but it wouldn't work because wherever you go, there you are. And, you know, it's great. We'll all get along, you know, once a week on Mondays, but if we started living together like that, we'd all sort of, within three weeks, we'd beat each other's throats and, you know. There, there's no good. There's no good place to retreat because you're still. I'm still following myself around wherever I go. So easy to demonize the world and to think and the world um, is uh, is is totally evil and we've got to sort of you know pray against it and look under every rock. Um, brief story: when I first in college, which is where my head and heart started to come together for the first time, and I was working at a summer camp. In Texas, when I say the head and the heart, all these inclinations towards prayer where I never had anybody like a youth minister or a church or anybody else to sort of guide me, but recognized um, some of that, that, that Christ had been drawing me, you know, for, for my entire life. Uh, but finally had some people to sort of say like, well, here's how to pray and here's a book. Why don't you start with Mark? And, you know, get and start, actually start reading and, and talking. And somebody said... The book that was going around amongst the staff at this camp were um, books by Frank Peretti. Does that name anything to anybody in this room? It probably does you, Abby. I don't know anybody else would. Just um, Piercing the Darkness in This Present Darkness. A couple people know who this is. My first exposure, it's funny that I turned out the way I did because this was a uh, just sort of cheap, not bad. I, I was page turner to me. It's not very good fiction. Just cheap Christian fiction. And the idea was spiritual warfare is alive and kicking. And there's the things that we can see. But if I'm looking out at all y'all, each one of you have a whole spiritual warfare going on with angels and demons and principalities and powers, and they're brandishing these great swords, and they had names like Tal and all these other things. I don't know, I met somebody named Tal later, which is really funny. Um, you know, and so there's a battle for all of our souls. You know, it's sort of good angel, bad angel, and all that's going on, and we have no idea. We're none the wiser. But as soon as you have that revelation, you can start to imagine that that's there, and you're looking under every single rock. Well, why did I think that? And you say, oh, it must be because I'm being tempted by this devil, and I've got to have this angel fight for me. <laughs> Not really. There's no freedom there. There's no peace. So you got here, self-righteous, doing okay here. Over here, demonize the world. Um, it's like, ah, i got to fly away and just, just try to unlock the right code and make sure that I'm going to be okay. Is there another way? as we're in this world trying to move through as resident aliens. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And yet, I'm still passing through in 70, 80, 90 years. We keep getting older longer. Um, what about that? It's not inconsequential. How do I live? How do I move through this world? Um, so, with all that as, as the beginning of an intro, um, Different. Well, let me just jump in. Let's let's read um, some scripture. Let's go there and let that sort of make some sense for us. Um, the story. I'm gonna tell you the story. I think you've told heard the story. Then we're gonna read it. I'm gonna interrupt along the way, and we're gonna contrast that with um, with Jesus inviting us to put on then, like clothes, to put on kindness and gentleness and humility, and above all else, put on love. And the idea here is put on like shoes, socks, pants, shirts, jackets, the robe of Christ. Put on then Christ himself. For as he said earlier in Colossians, um, our lives are now hidden with Christ 
in God. That's a big deal. What does that mean if our lives are hidden with Christ in God? Um, well, it means a lot. Um, one thing it means, when something's hidden, it's not easy to measure. <laughs> if it's hidden, it sort of makes it very difficult. In fact, it's by definition not able to be measurable and, uh, and quantifiable. I can't weigh something that's hidden because I can't get it and manipulate it and put it on the scales and put it out in the length and all that. And so that's the frustrating part about our lives as followers of Christ because if our lives are hidden, we can't sort of pull it out and say, like, okay, last week I was six units of faithful, and this week's I'm 15 units of faithful. See, I'm getting better, you know, because our lives are hidden. They're not easily measured or weighed or quantified. So that's frustrating, but we're not without hope because he says, well, put on them, these robes of mine. Um, for when God looks at you, he'll see the robes of the sun. And as he looks at the robes of the son, he says, well, that's the one, um, because I love my son and the one who has the robes. Bring the robe and kill the fattened calf. Remember Luke 15, the, the story of the, the prodigal who comes back. Um, he will regard us, it's going to be an important word, in the same way that he regards his son. How do we get there? John 8, first part of John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Um, Early in the morning, Jesus goes, we'll read this and I'm going to tell you the story. He goes uh, and he sits down because uh, unlike this where I'm standing, most people are sitting, um, uh, it's the flip. The teacher would have authority and he would signify authority, authorship, that he wasn't in a hurry, that he knew what he was doing. He's got the word and he would sit. He's not in a hurry. There's no pressure. There's no stress. He's confident in who he is and what his role is, and it's finished, and it's done. And the teachers in the synagogues would sit as people who had authority, and they would teach, and everybody else would be standing. And so it's the exact opposite of what we do now. And so he goes early in the morning, and that's important, um, probably six, seven in the morning, something like that, zero, one hour. Uh, and then as he's sitting there teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were seeking for a reason to accuse him, uh, bring a woman who's caught in adultery. King James Version even gives the quantifiable. It says, in the very act. Well, I think we can probably assume that if they go in there and they really have no regard for her, but they have everything just to set her up as a pawn to figure out how to trap Jesus. She's probably have a stitch of clothing on. This is where I've never found any art that really actually connects to the story in a, in a way that, that carries the, the emotion of this story. Um, so I don't have anything behind me. Uh, and if I did, well, I'd show it. Um, so there she is, probably a naked woman or, or very, very, very close to naked and absolute humiliation. She's brought low, but in that sort of violent, uh, stark way of, you know, and you know what it feels like to have that sort of sense. And now she's that and fearing for her life because they bring her as a tool, as a pawn, to say, now what say you, great teacher, you who sit as one who has authorship and authority, who uh, is completely confident in and of himself, even though you're just the son of a carpenter, now what say you, who spouts off as if he knows the law, as if he authors the law himself? You know the law. Moses himself said this woman should be stoned. So, friend of sinners, wine-bibber that you are, what are you going to do? Here's this woman sitting before you. Uh, what are you going to do? And then Jesus, so great, so great. He kneels and he starts writing, writing in the ground. 
what in the world is he writing? I'll give you an idea. I have no idea. It's just pure, pure, pure speculation. Only instance in the Gospels where Jesus has any instance of writing. And then they press him. It's a great detail. He's not in a hurry. He's writing in the ground. They persist and they keep asking him, what about it? What about it? What about it? What about it? And he finally stands up and he says, those of you without sin, let them carry, let them throw the first stone. And then he sits back down. And then sit down. And then he kneels back down. He keeps writing. And then the detail is given. And then they, it's a mic drop. Because then, uh, then they all get quiet. They were persisting and now they're quiet. And then from the oldest to the youngest, they leave one by one. The accusers leave from the oldest to the youngest until Jesus is there alone with the woman. What? She didn't have any clothes on. I mean, this is crazy. Seven in the morning, caught in the act. Jesus is there with this naked woman and have this last interchange of, uh, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? And you can only imagine what she does. I always get teary when I tell this story. It's like, there's no answer. And she says, well, neither do I condemn you. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, your life is hidden in me, Christ Jesus himself. The word became verb. Not just flesh, but verb. And I'm doing this word to you, woman. Uh, go now and sin no more. What? Sin no more? What, what could that mean? It's not like, you know, now you know what to do. Make sure you mind your P's and Q's now, Mordecai. Now run along. You know, it's, it can't be that. It can't not be that. There's just no way the story and the tone of it, plus the rest of the scripture, that Jesus is just giving this, this answer like we would to a three-year-old of, you know, what are you doing? Um, nothing. Your hand's in the cookie jar. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm taking a cookie. Take your hand out of the cookie jar. Now go along and don't ever do that again. I mean, that's just, that's not that's not the punch of the story. So what is the punch? Go now and sin no more. Let me read it. And then we'll sort of try to lean into that a little bit more. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. She's completely passive. She's just being, you know, moved around like a like a like a like a piece, like a pawn. Um, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman who had been caught in the act or the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Stoning. It's worth saying. I mean. Let's all gather around and just a bunch of rocks. Some are this big, some are this big, some are here. Let's just everybody, women, children, men, whoever's here, walk along, stay as long as you want, you know, pick up some rocks, and let's just throw it at this person until they die. That's what stone, it's, it's just not a nice way. Maybe something merciful would happen. Like you get a big one in the side of your head and it would make you at least semi-conscious, if not knock you out, before you finally get bludgeoned to death. Um, it's, a, it's an awful way, it's a convenient way to die in a place that has a lot of rocks, um, uh, which it does. And so they just said, let's just stone. And she's sitting there, and she hears, this is my fate. This is it. I mean, it, it is a dramatic scene. Uh, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask them, he stood up 
And he said to them, so Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger. What did he write? I don't know where I heard this, and I've heard it a couple times. We don't know. Pure speculation. We have no idea. Is he just doodling? You know, just kind of killing time. Just making, you know, sort of, you know, sun rising. Here's a house. You know, who knows? Maybe, just maybe, maybe. Maybe he's writing the law. Leviticus 20, 20. You shall not lie with a married woman or a married man. The penalty for this shall surely be death by stoning. And then maybe, just maybe, he writes Jesus right over it. Don't know. But we do know that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. That somehow he came, when he speaks the words, it is finished. To finish the law. To bring it all the way to its end. To drink the very dregs of the cup of wrath of God. Um, Lord, if there's any other way for this cup this cup of wrath, this cup of the future, of the destruction of the world. That's what the cup is that Jesus is drinking in Gethsemane. If there's any other way, Lord, for me to drink this, and the Lord and God, his Father, God our Father, says, no, there's not. And he drinks it all the way to the end, so there's not a drop left. And so he writes his name over her name, guilty, and says, Jesus, um, I'll take her penalty and give her life wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued the persistence to ask him. And he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. So here's the beginning of humility, being brought low. And the older we are, the more we see. Um, I'm not nearly as in charge as I think I am. My agency, my power, my potency is not nearly what I once thought it was. Andrew Sermon, you know, I can swim out of a riptide. I mean, I've been doing this my whole life. You're 22. <laughs> um, it's not that long a life. Um, you, you don't really know what you can and can't do. Um, you have not reckoned with yourself. Um, and one by one, the oldest to the youngest, I have no case here. I'm out of my jurisdiction. I cannot throw a stone um, guilty to guilty. Uh, and one by one, they leave. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now. Sin no more. Go now. And have this covering, which says, uh, no condemnation. Which has this writing, which says, uh, guilty, but paid by Christ's blood. Which has now this impervious covering, which says, she shall no longer be, her sin shall no longer be accounted to her, but accounted to Christ. This is what the big word of imputation is. Um, in Fitzsimmons Allison, second time he's been mentioned, um, uh, said if there's a word that is shorthand for the gospel, that Christ died for sinners, it's the word imputation. It's a great word. Um, and when we read our Bibles, it, there's lots of words, because we don't know how else to say the, the Greek word, which is logizomai. I don't want to geek out and Greek out on you, but the word for word is logos, and so the word for imputation is logos itzomai, or worded. 
Why is that important? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and then the Word became flesh. And then more than that, if the Word is verbed, worded, logizomide, that's the Word which now says, the Word is being done to you, naked woman, and the Word is verbing you. It is clothing you with clothing that cannot be removed, with a verdict that cannot be changed, with a, an accounting which cannot be undone. And so when you hear the word, it was credited to him, it was accounted to him, he was thought of, he was, um, it was merited to him. Uh, there's all these different English words that have this idea of being worded by God. That's what's happening to this woman. So then Colossians comes immediately to mind, where she's been humiliated, and now she's being brought to the possibility of hope, as no one is left to condemn her. Could this man give me my life? Um, as she's saying to me, as he's saying to me, uh, my sin will not be counted in my account, but it will be paid for in his his riches are now mine, and my poverty is now his. What would this mean? And here's the verb. Here's the word that's wording this woman, borrowing now Paul as, you know, speaking this word event, Christ being verbed to this woman in this very dramatic seven in the morning uh, scene in the temple where the two of them are alone. What if... This is kind of what happened to this woman. What would her life look like? Remember who we are? How do we live in this world? And now she goes out into the world. He does not say anything. He's not acting like it didn't happen. He said, oh, it happened. Last night happened. But now go into the world like this. How are we to live in this world? Put on them. The word made verb. So my hope here is, as these words are spoken, that we're clothed, that God in his mercy and his grace would do what the word is saying. And so if the word is going to say, put on clothes, that the word is actually clothing us in this kind of clothing that is about to be described. So Colossians 3. A lot of us had this read at our weddings, by the way. We did. Um, put on them as God's chosen ones. What does this mean, this chosen one, this elect one? It just means that what a merciful and comforting word that God's will will be the last will that will be done. That God's word will be the last word that's spoken over my life. That it's not, you know, my will be done, God. I don't care what you say. That I'm God's chosen one. The comforting doctrine of our understanding of, of being chosen by God is that I, God, will make sure what I want have happened in your life happen <laughs> whether you want it or not that's a comforting word to me um, as God's chosen one so put on them as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience break some of those words down um, talked about humility this strong sense of, of, of not rising far above our ground that I know who I am I know, Lord, my sin is always before me, and yet uh, you are always greater. Um, meekness, this sense of, uh, of, of not, not pressing forward, but always being receiving, 
a meek person is not a weak person. We hear that, blessed are the meek. Oh, that's just for mamby-pamby weak. It's, it's actually a great position of strength. It's like, I know who I am. Strengths, weaknesses, everything else. And I'll receive. I'll let it come to me, is what a meek person says. I'm, 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 I'm strong enough that I don't have to sort of manically sort of get out in front of it. I'll receive. Blessed are the meek. Those who can receive and still be confident that, that they're going to be okay. So I'll, I'll quit interrupting myself. Put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Imagine the, wor- the woman hearing these words. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in finished or perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I hear the echo. i got to interrupt this part. Um, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ the birth of faith, the sense of, I'm okay. Uh, The word of Christ dwell unhurriedly in you richly and abundantly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. The image I have is this woman hearing these words. Um, can it be, Lord? Can it be? Um, my Five minutes ago, I was about to get stoned. It might take ten minutes. It might take a day and a half. Um, and now I'm alone with you. And these words you're speaking to me, it's as if I'm being clothed. And I have this strange peace which passes understanding. I don't, I don't get it, but I, I have this place that I'm, I'm going to be okay. And even as I walk out of here, I'm going to be okay. Um, that's something like that. Maybe, perhaps, perhaps, as we walk into this world, not in this ditch. Hey, I'm God's pretty lucky to have me. Or not in this ditch. I'm really afraid. I mean, what am I going to do? I've got to figure this out. Getting a ditch that high, what am I going to do? I mean, so... No, peace. We're going to be okay. The Lord's word is the last word. Um, doesn't mean we're disengaged. It means we're fully engaged. We're actually free to be here now. So I had to find an exit. I think I'll stop there. So, thoughts? Questions? Now we can get into real specific parts if you want to. We've still got yeah, about 10 minutes. Um, either about that or um, I wasn't here for... Part of the time last week when the panel was up there, great, great, great words. Um, uh, we can bring some of those back up, or what's on your mind? Bill, yeah. I think I have, um, and he was covering them as well. Um, perhaps I, mean, I would think so, but uh, maybe he's enumerating their sins, and, and they peek down and whoop. Maybe I should not be so haughty here. So. <laughs> How did you know before all, all hearts are open, all desires no no secrets? I'm like, erase that quick. So, I didn't mean to derail that, but so, um, yeah, yeah. Then also, yeah. I mean, clearly she wasn't alone. 
<laughs> That's where's the man. So it takes two to tango. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. She was pawn is the only word I know. They didn't care a stitch for her. You know, and the Lord couldn't let that go. Compassionate hearts. Um, you know. He, 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 yeah. Yeah. Abby. So yeah. And Brandon. So. So I think I heard the first part. Sorry, I was up here making noise. Can you say the first part again? I was just speaking to the idea of, you know, we live by a different code and we, we need to be meek and humble and that's our strength. But what does that look like when we live in a world that yeah. is yeah. not? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks. Um, thanks a lot, Abby. Um, <laughs> just kidding. So. Um, in some ways, I want to say let that word ride. I'm going to sort of go all in on that. I'm not going to leave it there. Um, uh, but we let that word ride. What what word? That word of Christ, which dwells in us richly. Um, because if that word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, it's, it's affecting our hearts and giving us a confidence and a peace to be able to say something like, you know, I know that if we bring this into our family, my son or my daughter or my children, whatever it is, are going to have a different set of friends. Or it might be difficult, even, you know, the proverbial Friday night's home alone kind of thing. And some of that's just there, you know. And, and, and part of this is to say, like, it doesn't necessarily make everything hunky-dory and, and great. So now I want to use the word tension. Um, there's different ways, and we'll get into the person that said all this. It's helpful. Christ being above culture, so he doesn't sort of go either way. He's not against it all the time. Sort of Westboro Baptist picketing funerals and saying, "Oh, we're, you know, sinners or y'all, we've got the news. You know, we're okay. Y'all aren't. And so now we're going to be aggressive and everything's, you know, fight or sort of yeah, whatever." So I have the sort of 70s surfer kind of idea of, uh, you know, coexist, lot paths, no big deal. Those are two ideas with Christ and culture. Christ either baptizes culture and just kind of comes in and says, everything is good, or he says, you know, very, very little is good, and the inside knows what's good and everything else is bad. I don't think either of those, not many people, some would. This is kind of fundamentalist Christianity, in a bad word, and this is kind of mainline Protestant Christianity. Um, other ones, Christ stands above culture, and he's doing something. What's he doing? He's calling maybe two worlds together, you know, the world to come, which is finished, or the world which is still groaning is in the pains of childbirth. You know, the obituaries are still being written, which means death is still around, which means it's not finished. And so those two worlds are here, and we live in that overlap. That's my tendency to think there. And so we've always got tension between those two worlds. Or there's another one, and I'm very comfortable here too, that Christ standing over it. That there's a place as we're salt and light, salt being a preservative in the world and light being um, sort of reflective of the work of Christ in the world to others, Christians and non-Christians both, uh, uh, and it's having an effect. It's changing. 
it's converting. It's converting ourselves because we have a heart that needs new conversion, and it's converting others. That's I tend to think that's a little bit too aggressive for for my own taste. Um, I prefer to stay with the. But it's just going to be tense um, as we live differently as resident aliens, even though we're in a weird. Everybody else isn't there, and actually frees me to say like, well, of course everybody else is scheduling soccer games at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Why wouldn't they? Even though I work for the church and I get really mad, I do. When I'm in this part of the circle, I'm like, dang it, it makes it really hard to like plan things, and it's my job, it's what I'm supposed to do. I'm like, well, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't, quote, the world say, like, well, this is a convenient time. We don't have much else planned on Sunday mornings. We'll go ahead and do that now. And you got to sort of now make some wisdom. You know, like, when am I going to fight it? When am I going to sort of absorb into it? Um, when am I going to flee from it? And there's not an easy answer to that. I think every context has to say, like, I'm going to fight this, and it's just our rule. We don't do anything before 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings. We're just not. So, um, never mind. Um, so, does that help? That's not a good answer, I know, because I don't think there's, a, there's not a great bow. Um, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> safety and the isolation in some ways, but then also living in the world. Are there any kind of things that you do out of self-protection, or, you know, things like the company you keep is what you become, or how to be a part of the world and pass through, but also not absorb, as you're saying, some of the, you don't even necessarily know what's happening. Sure. You know, little by little. Yeah, I should cover up, in case for some reason my daughter is going to like to talk about them. Um in Sunday school, I'm mean, use them as examples, but Mamey can chime in on this. Advice. This is about as much. I don't give advice very often, but this is about closest to advice as I give, especially when your kids are little. Um, choose their friends for them. <laughs> I mean, you got a lot more control than you think. I mean, of course you can choose their friends. And how are you choosing their friends? Choose their friends because of who their parents are. Um, uh, you've got a lot of control when they're five. Um, just because so-and-so says you're supposed to go to this, that, or the other, it's like, well, I don't think that's a good idea. Why? Because of the parents. That sounds really bad, but you're being discerning. Remember here? And there's no easy way, am I going to, you know, be aggressive and sort of fight? Or am I going to be passive and kind of yield? Or am I going to sort of do something of both? And every context is different. In other words, every relationship is different. Um, every child is different, and so what you do for one, your child number one isn't what you do for child number three. That's totally fine. You're supposed to parent each child and not your children necessarily. Um, and so that's the first thing that comes to mind is shape the pool that they're in. We're all porous, and so you put something that's porous in a liquid solution. It takes on some properties of the solution. I like to break it into physical things. Um, well, who do I want to have sort of influencing my children? That guy right back there. That's who. So that's actually a true story. Um, uh, those sorts of things. Pursue who's in there. Now, when they get older, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to choose their friends. Um, uh, but, you know, so that's the first thought. Anybody else come in? Now we can make this a crosstalk, too. Um, He'll talk to... Uh it's the first time I'd really thought about it. Had somebody say that you know she's brought before Christ, you know, essentially naked, which is how we come before Him. That's right. That's exactly right. He exposes the men, I guess, in something that He's writing, 
but it, since this is about family, talk about how, um, as parents, you get exposed to your children. <laughs> and so how do you, you know, they see. Put on then <laughs> kindness and gentleness and patience and meekness and, um, yeah, at an appropriate age, you know, every, you know when they're four years old isn't the time for you to tell them everything you did in college. Um, but when they're older, it might be. Um, so that you can have a humbling, so that you can say, look, 20-year-old son, um, newsflash, your mom and I didn't always know what we were doing. <laughs> you know, We were flying by the seat of our pants um, most of the time, trying our best to make a decision. You're, you're humbling yourself and you're pulling yourself down. That's what you can do with your 20-year-old. There's different ways to do that with your 5-year-old, with your, with your, even an 18-month-old, um, depending on who that 18-month-old is, to uh, at an appropriate age and appropriate ways, uh, let them know that you're trying to be dependent upon God or other people, your small group, your church, some other people like that, that uh, an answer something like, you know, maybe end, look, sweetheart, I don't know exactly what the right answer is. Um, I'm, I'm trying to just follow you know, what what I heard at church or what the Bible is teaching or your mom and I are praying about this and this is the best thing we got right now. Um, and to have that kind of humility, that vulnerability, which means they can come back, but now you're in that tension, um, but that's, that's okay. Um, that you're not always completely the only one that knows everything. Um, God, that wasn't a good answer because there's a lot of things that are important, but I'll let that stand anyway. wish I could come back. But, I feel you know. like you're, uh, you're unclothed when you admit that you don't know. That's right. When you're the parent, you unclothe yourself to saying, I'll think about it, I'll come back with you. That's good. That's a much better answer. Um, <laughs> at an appropriate age, there's different ways to do that. So, so good. <laughs> Should go. 10:50. So happy to stay after if anybody wants to talk. But um, Lord, uh, take these words and uh, correct me where I was wrong, because I'm always wrong somewhere. Um, but where you would speak, um, especially your word, to put on uh, uh, your robes. Uh, let us go forth now into the world, confusing and unsteady place, um, uh, with a peace that passes understanding, with a simple sense, um, even though it's not easy, with a simple sense that that your word and your will will be done. Um, uh, let it be, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.